Chapter 22, Part 1 The Failed Transition Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 22 The Failed Transition Page 627 as Operation Together Forward II wound down in the fall of 2006, General George W. Casey, Jr. considered the disappointments of this latest iteration of the Baghdad security plan and determined that the dynamics in the capital had to change. A heated encounter with Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki only confirmed this grim realization. Casey returned to Baghdad after a week of consultations in Washington and learned that on the day prior, October 11th, Iraqi soldiers stationed west of the Tigris River in the Mansur district had caught 17 men clad in army uniforms in the act of raiding a local Sunni residence. Protesting their arrest, the men identified themselves as members of the Iraqi army on a secret mission authorized by the prime minister. A phone call interrupting their interrogation validated this claim. An irate major general from Maliki's office demanded the release of the soldiers in custody, some of whom were assigned to an army unit based in Sadr City, and threatened to arrest the commander of the brigade holding them. The incident struck a nerve with Casey, who in the previous month had heard similar complaints from Iraqi brigade and division commanders about the prime minister's office bypassing the military chain of command and ordering the release of prisoners without explanation. For an American commander whose strategy relied on the capability and professionalism of the Iraqi security forces, such instances of brazen overreach rankled him. Paired with Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad, Casey confronted Maliki his first day back in country. When the Prime Minister unapologetically acknowledged his office's role in the operation, the Multinational Force Iraq or MNFI commander pointed out just how ugly perceptions of this incident could be. The Prime Minister was essentially orchestrating raids out of Sadr City against Sunni enclaves in the capital. Sectarian overtones aside, the practice of circumventing the Ministry of Defense and the chain of command undermined the military institutions that so desperately needed to be solidified. When Maliki dismissed Casey's concern as, quote, no big deal, end quote, the MNFI commander pushed back more fervently, enough for the prime minister to ask if the general was threatening him. Returning to his quarters that night, Casey wrote an email to his boss at U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, General John P. Abizade. Casey related that he understood Maliki's frustration at having limited rapid response capability to strike at fleeting terrorist targets, and the necessity of coordinating with, quote, too many people, end quote, i.e. the coalition, constantly tested the prime minister's patience. However, the fact that Maliki remained, quote, unrepentant and did not appear to grasp the significance or consequences of his actions, end quote, deeply troubled the MNFI commander. Quote, he is clearly frustrated with the slowness of the transition and wants his hands on the controls, wrote Casey, but he is just as clearly not ready to command the IAF, or Iraqi Armed Forces, end quote. Maliki wanted control of the security apparatus as quickly as possible, and for his part, Casey was willing, even eager, to grant it. Yet, in the fall of 2006, the threats besieging Iraqi society far exceeded the ability of the Iraqi government and its security forces to deal with them. Casey often made the case that this gap was closing, but even if that were the case, it was closing too slowly for everyone's taste. Accumulating evidence of the government's complicity in perpetuating the cycle of violence, the kind illustrated by the Maliki-sanctioned October 11th raid from Sadr City, cast a pall over Baghdad's near-term prospects for stability. The Deteriorating Security Situation in Baghdad Page 628 MNFI faced an uphill climb. The conflict remained a competition among, quote, ethno-sectarian groups vying for economic power and political influence against the backdrop of a residual insurgency and an increasingly sectarian terrorist campaign, end quote. Such had been the coalition's basic understanding of the problem since the aftermath of February's Samara Mosque bombing, but conditions had become even grimmer. Shia death squad activity, once believed to be the sphere of, quote, 
rogue Jaish al-Mahdi or JAM militia, end quote, now appeared to include mainstream elements of Muqtada Sadr's militia and others such as the Badr Corps. Faced with the Shia militia onslaught, Sunni neighborhood watches in Baghdad had grown more organized and had even begun to acquire limited offensive capability. Furthermore, the Shia-Sunni conflict continued to be characterized by a geographical component. Violence in October mainly occurred in the western part of the city, but it spread beyond the capital itself as Shia militias attempted to expand their control of Baghdad's northern and southern lines of communication, often with the assistance of militia-infiltrated Iraqi units. Operation Together Forward II, which had formerly ended on October 22nd, took a toll on al-Qaeda in Iraq, but the growing problem of the Shia militias meant that tactical success against Sunni extremists had lost some of its significance. As Operation Together Forward II concluded, seven of the coalition's 15 U.S. Brigade Combat Teams, or BCTs, fell under the control of Major General John T. Thurman's 4th Infantry Division, assigned as Multinational Division Baghdad, or MNDB. At the time, three of these units occupied territory in the northern and southern belts just outside the city. Four operated inside Baghdad proper. East of the Tigris River, 4th Brigade 101st Airborne Division focused on pursuing insurgents based in the beleaguered Sunni enclave of Atemiya while struggling to limit Shia militia forays out of Sadr City and across the Army Canal. Two brigades split the western half of the capital, with 2nd Brigade 1st Armored Division responsible for the northern sections of Mansur and Kadamiya, and 4th Brigade 4th Infantry Division operating across the breadth of Rashid. The 172nd Striker Brigade served as a strike force operating in trouble spots throughout the city. These American units were joined by elements of two Iraqi army divisions, the 6th and the 9th, as well as two national police divisions of dubious utility. Plans had existed since the late spring to move two additional Iraqi army brigades from the outlying provinces to Baghdad, but the Ministry of Defense had failed to deliver on what would have been a welcome infusion of Iraqi manpower. As Ramadan ended and October gave way to November, Thurman and MNDB observed a few positive indicators of levels of violence, but the atmosphere was generally gloomy. Militants had carried out an average of 80 attacks per day in Baghdad in October. MNDB reported an average of 76 attacks per day the first week of November, a number that held about steady throughout the month. Quote, incidents, end quote, tracked as part of the broader ethno-sectarian conflict, followed a more uneven trend during this period. According to coalition estimates, during the week of October 28th to November 3rd, 274 Iraqis were killed in a total of 147 incidents in Baghdad. Security-related incidents dropped to 99 the following week, shot back up to 158 the next, and then settled down to 137 toward month's end. The brutality of the sectarian conflict translated into intense fighting for coalition units in and around the capital. During a patrol in the Haria district on October 30th, an element from the 172nd Striker Brigade was caught in an ambush with the platoon leader's vehicle disabled by an explosively formed penetrator. Despite being wounded himself, Sergeant Gregory D. Williams Jr. recovered his wounded lieutenant and provided suppressive fire until assistance arrived. For his actions, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. Similarly, Chief Warrant Officer David F. Cooper received the Distinguished Service Cross for heroism he displayed on a November 27th mission targeting foreign fighters in the Baghdad Belt area between Taji and Lake Tartar. After one of the other helicopters in his flight from the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment was shot down, Cooper set up a defensive perimeter to await the recovery team. Attacked by a massive enemy force that included dismounted personnel and vehicles armed with anti-aircraft cannons, Cooper flew multiple strafing runs and prevented the ground perimeter from being overrun. The intense fighting highlighted that levels of violence remained far above those routinely observed before the February 2006 Samara Mosque bombing. When U.S. forces captured Saddam Hussein in December 2003, the coalition had high hopes that justice served would bring a stabilizing sense of closure to Iraqi society. Nearly three years later, however, the Iraqi government braced itself against an anticipated backlash in the wake of the November 5th announcement that the former dictator had been sentenced to death by hanging. 
A curfew and vehicle ban in Baghdad dampened violence for a short time, but as the month of November progressed, the coalition detected an elevation of suicide attacks. These had averaged 35 per month from January to August 2006, but had risen to above 50 in both September and October. The near-simultaneous explosions of four car bombs in the Shia-populated district of New Baghdad on November 19th served as a reminder of al-Qaeda in Iraq's staying power. Four days later, on November 23rd, Sunni extremists rocked Sadr City with the detonation of six car bombs in the space of 90 minutes, killing 181 civilians and wounding another 247. The combined attack was the deadliest since the war in Iraq had begun in 2003, and a rattled Casey reported to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that he considered the bombings in Sadr City as significant as the Samara Mosque attack the previous February. Indeed, JAM and other Shia militias showed signs of striking back hard in retaliation for al-Qaeda's high-profile attacks. Reports surfaced that the militias intended to sidestep the curfew by donning Iraqi security forces' uniforms and operating official vehicles. Indirect fire against Sunni mosques mounted. Shia militants added to the chaos with a spate of high-level kidnappings. With JAM on the move and al-Qaeda poised to continue its onslaught, the sectarian violence in Baghdad seemed out of control. MNFI spokesmen repeated assertions that Iraq was not in a state of civil war, but the command's internal assessment painted a different picture. In the wake of high-profile attacks and reprisals, three of MNFI's four, quote, civil war indicators, end quote, pointed in an unfavorable direction, with the fourth inconclusive. The security situation seemed to have deteriorated since the previous month, when a leaked report from CENTCOM depicted the, quote, index of civil strife, end quote, in Iraq as edging consistently toward, quote, chaos, end quote. In Search of an Iraqi Solution The central tenet of MNFI's strategy was that, quote, enduring success will only be achieved by Iraqis, end quote. If, as Casey believed, quote, Iraqi problems require Iraqi solutions, end quote, then the deployment of additional American troops to the theater would yield temporary and local security gains, but fail to supply the leverage necessary to arrive at a long-term solution. As Casey accumulated experience as MNFI commander, he grew more convinced that there was a subtle danger in, quote, doing too much with your own hands, end quote. Even as the security situation deteriorated in the fall of 2006, he subjected the question of troop levels to a rigorous test. Would increasing the current number of American soldiers in Iraq move MNFI closer to the end state of an Iraqi government securing its citizens or not? Lower-level commanders nervous about the tactical situation were, in effect, challenged to think about the long-term implications. When debates about off-ramps or reinforcements were framed in this way, Casey's subordinates often demurred. If the end state was a self-reliant Iraq, argued Casey, then a foreign military force actively engaged in maintaining order ultimately hampered progress toward that goal. To win, to meet its strategic objectives in the most expeditious manner, The United States had to draw down, he believed, while gradually adapting its force posture to support an increasingly sovereign Iraq. By late 2006, Casey saw additional reasons to counsel against further U.S. troop involvement. He and other commanders doubted whether the Iraqi government wanted stability as much as the coalition did. Casey suspected that powerful factions within the government viewed the continuing cycle of violence as advancing their interests, yet the complex interplay of violent actors in Baghdad only bolstered his inclination to shift responsibility toward the Iraqis. Reflecting on this difficult period, Casey later admitted to asking himself whether he should have allowed the U.S. military to shoulder more of the security burden. Quote, If it had been just a counterinsurgency, I probably would have. End quote, he recalled. Because the conflict was fundamentally a struggle for political and economic power among diverse ethno-sectarian groups, he judged that an outside actor like the coalition was not in a position to navigate these turbulent waters. The more complex the situation, the less inclined Casey was to put American soldiers at risk. 
The impending rotation of the U.S. division and brigades in Baghdad also reinforced his predisposition to make only minor adjustments to the military plan and to scale back involvement in favor of allowing the Iraqis to lead. When it came to the question of bringing in additional American troops, the MNFI commander felt certain that the domestic U.S. political context militated against this option in any case. Since Casey's assumption of command in 2004, the Secretary of Defense, or SECDEF, had prescribed a path to success that entailed drawing down American forces while reducing their role vis-a-vis the Iraqis, an approach to which Casey, as well as Abizaid, generally subscribed. Like Casey, SECDEF Donald Rumsfeld's opposition to increasing the U.S. presence was rooted partially in his concern that American soldiers would tend to carry out combat missions themselves rather than risk failure at the hands of less capable Iraqi units. The downside of the U.S. military's, quote, can-do, end quote, attitude was that it undermined the urgency with which the Iraqi government approached the transfer of security responsibility, Rumsfeld believed. Making Iraqi units too reliant on their U.S. partners would dissuade them from eventually taking the lead in security operations and, in the long run, extend the American military commitment, he concluded. From the beginning, Rumsfeld communicated to Casey that time was of the essence. For both, it was not a stretch to associate a rise in U.S. troop levels in late 2006 with, quote, doing too much, end quote, for the Iraqis and extending the length of the war. The Shia South, Embers Under Ashes, page 631. Across the Shia South, the British-led Multinational Division Southeast, or MNDSE, had carried out an economy of force mission under a similar belief that coalition troop levels should diminish over time. British leaders were under increasing pressure to support rising troop commitments in Afghanistan, faced criticism at home over the unpopular Iraq war, and were persuaded that the southern provinces were already sufficiently stable. As such, they made transferring security responsibilities to Iraqi forces the focus for their deploying commanders. The transition to Provincial Iraqi Control, or PIC, was an important milestone not only on the road to Iraqi, quote, security self-reliance, end quote, but also as a prerequisite for the withdrawal of the United Kingdom, or UK, troops from the country. Granting PIC status to each of the four provinces in MNDSE was the ticket out of Iraq. Unfortunately, the perception of comparative calm in the MNDSE sector created a false sense of security that encouraged transition on the basis of wishful thinking rather than actual conditions on the ground. Since the first years of the coalition's Iraq campaign, the United States and Britain had operated under an accommodation of sorts. U.S. commanders were content to leave what they regarded as an economy of force mission to their European allies in the South. British officers, in turn, would manage and resource the mission enough to keep things in Basra under control while carrying out a series of incremental force reductions. Nonetheless, while the sectarian homogeneity of the Shia South spared the region from a cycle of retaliatory death squad activity, violence and criminality had escalated all the same in 2006, undermining development, governance, and security. The lack of British enthusiasm for the war prevented MNDSE from playing a more active role in securing the population, and Shia militias sought to fill the void with destabilizing consequences. In reality, the informal U.S.-U.K. accommodation unwittingly made the British, quote, mere observers of the gradual transfer of power to Iranian-backed militias, end quote, as one officer described it. Maliki acknowledged the worsening problems, particularly in Basra, and developed a security plan for the city to shore up public confidence, reduce police corruption, confront the militias, and uphold the rule of law. He declared a state of emergency there in June 2006, and the following month established a Basra Security Committee chaired by Major General Ali Hamadi, his senior military advisor. Like much of Iraq in the second half of 2006, the populous southern city was the scene of a communal power struggle involving multiple factions. A besieged governor championed the interests of his own Fadila party while competing militias engaged in a campaign to infiltrate or undermine the local state apparatus. Distrustful of the governor and alarmed by deteriorating conditions in the province, Maliki staffed the Basra Security Committee with his confidants. 
One of them forebodingly characterized the city as, quote, embers under ashes. When the ashes are removed, the flames will return, end quote. Meanwhile, the 10th Iraqi Army Division wrestled with loyalty and capacity issues due in part to an inept commander, the low priority it received in terms of equipment and funding, and a large number of Basra natives in its ranks who were vulnerable to intimidation by local militias. The early British decision not to embed advisors with the division's subordinate units during operations also hampered their development. Hamadi, Maliki's man in Basra, put little stock in the division's abilities. Only about 50 to 60 percent of the division was reliable, Hamadi judged, and its soldiers were not strong enough to stand up to JAM in any case. He rated the police as far worse, gauging their reliability at 15 to 25 percent. At best, Iraqi security forces in Basra turned a blind eye to death squad activities. At worst, the local security forces were private militias beholden to political parties engaged in a war among themselves. The solution to the loyalty problem, he argued, was to raise one or two battalions of tribal recruits answerable only to the Basra Security Committee. The penchant for creating a responsive military organization outside of the normal chain of command seemed ubiquitous. Elsewhere, MNDSE pressed ahead with the transition to provincial Iraqi control. In July 2006, the division transferred security responsibility for Mutana province to the Iraqi army and handed over Camp Smitty, a base outside the city of Samawa, after which the Australian task force that had been posted there relocated to Talil Airfield near Nasiriya and assumed an, quote, operational overwatch, end quote, role. Days later, however, hundreds of Iraqis overwhelmed the indigenous guard force and stripped the camp almost bare making off in pickup trucks with everything from air conditioning units and computers to bedding and kitchen utensils. The looting tarnished the luster of what Maliki had billed as a, quote, great national day, end quote, and threw doubt on Iraq's readiness to take this first significant step toward, quote, building a stable and democratic future, end quote, in the southern provinces, as UK Defense Minister Desmond Brown optimistically described it. In nearby Dikar, the battalion-sized Italian contingent had begun to draw down in preparation for the Iraqi assumption of provincial control in September as Italy moved to complete its troop withdrawal. A third southern province, Najaf in MNDB's sector, was slated to go to PIC in December. These supposed success stories masked internal Iraqi struggles that continued with varying degrees of violence long after the transitions occurred. Even in relatively stable Mutana province, where the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, or SCIRI, controlled the levers of political and military power, the population suffered from JAM intimidation. From Salamanca to Sinbad When Major General Richard D. Shiraf assumed command of MNDSE in July 2006, he brought a new perspective on British operations that challenged the prevailing mindset of transition and withdrawal. He was troubled by the worsening security environment, not least the shortage of resources that seemed to prevent the division from forestalling it. In Mizan province, bordering Iran, the cities of Amara and Majar al-Kabir were, quote, effectively no-go areas, end quote, where any UK operations resulted in serious fighting. Just one battalion covered Basra city, and that unit was capable of deploying only 200 soldiers on the streets at any time. According to Sheriff, the strategy of gradual withdrawal not only risked failure in Iraq, but also jeopardized the reputation of the British Army, as well as the UK's reputation as a reliable ally of the United States. Quote, We had a strategy that involved extraction rather than achieving mission success, end quote, he recalled later. Quote, it was, in a sense, an exit strategy rather than a winning strategy. End quote. The general believed that without security, there could be no stability or economic development on which to base the withdrawal. Security, he argued, was the prerequisite for PIC. What he witnessed upon his arrival in Iraq was instead a, quote, cycle of insecurity, end quote. Sheriff envisioned a large-scale resource-intensive operation to confront the militias and restore security. 
He developed this concept in conjunction with the British 3rd Mechanized Division headquarters and the 19th Light Brigade prior to their Iraq deployment. Adopting a, quote, clear, hold, build, end quote, methodology, the plan divided Basra into 16 districts, each to be tackled sequentially through a series of pulses and pauses. After British troops pulsed into a district and conducted clearing operations that targeted criminals and indirect fire cells, Iraqi forces would follow in order to reestablish their presence in the area during a deliberate pause. Then would come development projects designed to deliver quick results and create jobs, Shirev hoped. A requested surge in support from the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the Department for International Development did not materialize, thus undercutting the comprehensive civil-military approach Shirov sought. To conduct this operation, dubbed Operation Salamanca, Shirov requested additional forces, and given London's reluctance to deploy more troops to Iraq, the MNDSE commander looked for them inside his organization. Visiting Camp Abu Naji on the outskirts of Amara in late July, Sheriff conferred with the commander of the Queen's Royal Hussars, who convinced the general to close down the base. Amara's inhospitable security environment kept the battle group bottled up, and frequent mortar fire added to its woes. Furthermore, sustaining the formation required a three-day round trip by the entire division reserve, involving over 200 logistics vehicles every two weeks. Seeing an opportunity, Sheriff agreed to transfer Camp Abu Naji to the Iraqis. Splitting the 1,200-man battle group, he ordered half to exchange their tanks and infantry fighting vehicles for wheeled land rovers and conduct a mobile screening operation along the Iranian border. As part of this tactical readjustment, the others would report to Basra, where they would augment the main effort. The subsequent events surrounding the British withdrawal from Camp Abu Naji reflected poorly on the Iraqi security forces as well as on MNDSE. In mid-August, troops from a battalion of the 4th Brigade 10th Iraqi Army Division mutinied when their leaders informed them of a plan to deploy the unit north to Baghdad for operation together forward. With its ranks infiltrated by both JAM and Badr Corps fighters, the battalion collectively refused to participate and ended the protest only when the brigade commander announced that the imminent move had been cancelled. Meanwhile, the Queen's Royal Hussars continued their withdrawal and completed the ill-timed transfer. Within hours of the British leaving camp, a mob of 5,000 Iraqis, including several hundred armed men, demanded entry. The Iraqi Guard Force, consisting primarily of former mutineers, happily obliged after receiving a promise of safe passage. As they had done at Camp Smitty, looters stripped Camp Abu Naji of all that could be carried away, while the local solderist office broadcast over loudspeakers, quote, This is the first Iraqi city that has kicked out the occupier, end quote. Militants claimed that indirect fire attacks had chased off coalition forces, and senior U.S. leaders at MNFI interpreted the British decision that way as well. Emboldened, JAM continued its campaign to wrest control of Amara from the Badr-led local police, enjoying the support of the province's Sadrist governor as it did so. Kidnappings and assassinations escalated dramatically in October when JAM fighters overran a number of police stations, prompting the dispatch of Iraqi army battalions from Basra and the deployment of British units to the outskirts of the provincial capital. While highly embarrassing for MNDSE, the aftermath of the Camp Abu Naji transfer also highlighted the questionable state of the 10th Iraqi Army Division. When Sheriff briefed Operation Salamanca to General Peter Corelli in August, he sought U.S. involvement in his plan. In doing so, Sheriff bucked the trend among British commanders of accepting and even encouraging MNDSE's treatment as a separate entity within MNCI. Approaching Corelli as a genuine tactical subordinate, Sheriff asked for American reinforcements to support clearing operations in Basra. Struck by the MNDSE commander's unusually aggressive concept, Corelli offered a U.S. battalion from his operational reserve, a company of AH-64 helicopters, one unmanned aerial vehicle to close a gap in British surveillance coverage, and $80 million to supplement development projects. Casey also agreed in principle with Operation Salamanca after Sheriff promised to maintain MNDSE's screen along Mizen's eastern border to discourage Iranian weapons smuggling. 
Yet the idea of employing U.S. forces to augment the Basra effort appalled civilian and military leaders in London, who considered it tantamount to an admission of British failure. At Britain's Permanent Joint Headquarters, or PJHQ, the UK Chief of Joint Operations instructed Sheriff to turn down the offer, but to compensate, PJHQ agreed to reinforce MNDSE with a battalion from the Staffordshire Regiment and another that had been preparing for a stint in Cyprus. Sheriff welcomed the concession, but deployment timelines for the newly committed units would delay the start of the operation and cause it to extend beyond the end of his six-month tour. The ambitious effort envisioned by Sheriff would eventually be scaled down. If British leaders in the United Kingdom had little inclination to fully support Operation Salamanca, the Iraqi government was also reluctant to confront the Shia militias head-on, preferring to seek a political accommodation with the Sadrists and other Shia militants. Briefed on the plan in August, Iraqi National Security Advisor Mouafak Rabai rejected it based on the recommendation of Maliki's Dawa Party advisor on Basra matters, Safa al-Safi. The Prime Minister requested a modified approach that focused primarily on economic development, with the Iraqi security forces conducting only limited security operations. Shiraf reworked the concept in September 2006 alongside members of the Basra Security Committee and presented the revised plan, Operation Sinbad, to Maliki, Rabai, and Casey later that month. Skeptical of the MNDSE commander's aggressive approach to put the restive province on a sound footing, senior officers at PJHQ emphasized merely the narrative of success over what could actually be accomplished and derisively labeled the operation, quote, spin bad, end quote. Commanders in Baghdad take stock. Page 635. While their senior headquarters wrestled with how to change course to dampen the sectarian conflict in Baghdad, U.S. BCTs operating in the city continued to engage in a complex, frustrating, and at times befuddling war. Since the January 2005 elections, MNFI had envisioned a steady transition as coalition units reduced their presence throughout the country and passed control to improving Iraqi security forces. By November 2006, this overarching thrust of the campaign remained, but leaders at the tactical level found it increasingly problematic, particularly in Baghdad. East of the Tigris River, for example, 4th Brigade 101st Airborne Division witnessed a three-way fight among Sunni insurgents, JAM, and the coalition, with the ill-defined loyalties of local Iraqi security forces obscuring the way forward even more. Determining how U.S. troops participated in this sectarian melee most effectively was murky. Brigade Commander Colonel Thomas Vale complained of, quote, the lack of a clear, unified definition of the end state, end quote, and offered the troubling judgment that the Iraqi government and security forces' goals, quote, are not necessarily aligned with ours, end quote. If the question of how to end the fighting in Baghdad seemed unsettled, BCT commanders were certainly not confused about the nature of the violence. Those posted in the capital in the fall of 2006 were nearing the end of their year-long combat tours. When asked by Casey for their views on the security situation, few held back. All saw the units they led embroiled in sectarian conflict, a struggle far more complicated and demanding, they believed, than a classic counterinsurgency. What made their mission especially difficult was the destructive bias of the Iraqi government itself. The unanimity among BCT commanders assigned to MNDB was staggering. To a man, they branded the government and its security forces as instigators of sectarian violence. Quote, JAM, or Jaysh al-Mahdi, has been executing and continues to execute a deliberate, decentralized campaign to control East Baghdad, end quote, wrote Vale, with death squads operating energetically and publicly and Iraqi security forces in support, either actively or passively. Colonel Michael H. Shields, commander of the 172nd Striker Brigade, noted that the Iraqi government, quote, facilitates JAM activities, end quote, including the maintenance of a safe haven in Sadr City. In the northwest quadrant of the capital, Colonel Robert Skurlock, in charge of 2nd Brigade 1st Armored Division, assessed that, quote, most Iraqi people view the militias as the government in most neighborhoods, end quote. 
The perception strongly held among Sunnis that local security forces were, quote, heavily influenced, end quote, or simply, quote, run, end quote, by Shia militia leaders only seemed to confirm this close connection. Iraqi security forces in Rashid district provided both tacit and deliberate support to JAM, and Colonel Michael F. Beach, the brigade commander there, had linked the national police directly to the mass murder of Sunnis on two recent occasions. In the rural and largely Sunni belts south of Baghdad, newly arrived Colonel Michael Kershaw, commanding 2nd Brigade 10th Mountain Division, reported observing sectarian violence only, quote, in areas where GOI, or Government of Iraq, forces are in the lead, end quote. Not a ringing endorsement of Iraqi progress toward stability. While MNFI balked at characterizing the conflict as a civil war, the brigade commanders in Baghdad were much more inclined to do so. Reflecting on the mobilization of local Sunni militias to confront JAM intimidation in Mansur and Kadimiya, Skirlock saw the possibility of a rapidly downward spiral. Quote, To have a true civil war, you need to have opposing political and ideological views, backed by population centers and militias, end quote, he wrote. Quote, we are dangerously close to seeing this on a widespread scale. End quote. In Rashid, Beach feared similar implications of the deteriorating security situation. Quote, the threat of self-sustaining and expansive Iraqi civil war in the capital city is now only being contained by U.S. forces. End quote, he reported. How the brigade commanders viewed the character of the conflict affected their judgment on how coalition military power should be applied. Given their widely shared assessment of the fight as a sectarian conflict, several commanders viewed separating the belligerents as the primary role of U.S. forces. Quote, At the tactical level, most of the counterinsurgency principles apply, end quote, concluded Colonel John Tully, commander of 2nd Brigade 4th Infantry Division, but adhering to counterinsurgency doctrine at the operational and strategic levels of war was, quote, destined for failure as long as the central government is controlled by sectarian forces, end quote. Absent a legitimate host nation government, Tully added, coalition forces had to, quote, mediate the conflict at a local level, end quote. Posted on the northern outskirts of Baghdad in Taji, Colonel James Pascaret, the commander of 1st Brigade 4th Infantry Division, agreed that U.S. troops were typically seen as, quote, honest brokers, end quote, in the ongoing sectarian conflict by both Sunni and Shia actors. Pascaret considered security as foundational to the needs of the population and, as honest brokers, the Americans were especially well-suited to provide that security. From his area south of the capital, Kershaw concurred, commenting that where sectarian violence routinely occurred, the job of the coalition was, quote, to prevent two rivals from exterminating each other, end quote. A separate assessment prepared around the same time by MNCI officers for Corelli took a similar stance, quote, If the course is not diverted soon, Corelli's officers warned, then a large-scale ethno-sectarian conflict, civil war, is assured, end quote. Their paper called for a, quote, fundamental shift, end quote, in the coalition's approach to one of peace enforcement operations. Forces in and around Baghdad should impose a, quote, forcible separation of belligerent parties, end quote, intervene to restore order, and redouble efforts to retrain civil authorities and enhance government credibility. Quote, the establishment of physical separation, they posited, will force a halt in the cycle of violence, creating time for other methods of conflict resolution to be utilized, end quote. Of course, undertaking such an approach required more troops. Troop presence mattered in the eyes of multinational division Baghdad or MNDB's brigade commanders, and it also appeared to matter to Iraqis. A division assessment in November 2006 found beleaguered Sunni residents in Ghazalia relieved to see the coalition assuming a more prominent role in providing security. Another assessment brought bad news, but it reinforced the same point. In areas where citizens believed that coalition forces were leaving, they were less likely to engage and pass on information. Troubled by what they saw, the U.S. brigade commanders advocated a new approach. 
If additional troops were not forthcoming, then U.S. leaders needed to change how they employed those on hand. The commanders pushed for taking a harder line against JAM, quote, the most significant threat to stability and to coalition forces, end quote, ventured Beach. Sensing and lamenting a reluctance to target high-level JAM fighters, Skurlock advised ramping up operations to disrupt the militia, detaining its leaders, and then ignoring Iraqi demands for their quick release. Vale, the commander responsible for Sadr City, proposed a deliberate effort to, quote, fractionalize, end quote, JAM, in order to drive a wedge between the mainstream elements of the militia and the more radical factions that were emerging. Causing dissension among JAM's subgroups might be one way to compensate for a limited number of U.S. troops. Adjusting the relationship between coalition and Iraqi units was another. All the brigade commanders assigned to MNDB submitted that the Iraqi security forces in their areas of operations bore careful watching. Three officers explicitly recommended revitalized unit partnerships to address this pressing need. Shields described an arrangement whereby a coalition battalion could cover the same battle space as an Iraqi army or national police brigade, as well as the police stations there. Such an arrangement would not only facilitate closer monitoring by the American unit, but also establish a means for Iraqi units under distinct chains of command to monitor each other. Shields viewed the partnership as a way to improve Iraqi fighting capabilities since Iraqi security forces, quote, fight harder when they know the coalition force is minutes away, end quote. In turn, an emphasis on partnership would drive U.S. leaders to, quote, maintain a continuous presence in the zone, end quote. He suggested that a battalion keep one to three platoons forward at all times, ready to respond to an Iraqi unit's call for assistance within 30 minutes. Other commanders put a premium on an American presence in order to, quote, align ISF objectives with our own, end quote, and, quote, limit their latitude to passively or actively support sectarian violence, end quote. They proposed encouraging the Iraqis to develop an offensive mindset through more combined operations and urged the adoption of, quote, combat outposts with direct access to the population, end quote. Kershaw went so far as to admonish, quote, get off the roads and on foot and into the hinterlands and side streets, end quote. This last bit of advice would take time to institutionalize. Still, this set of recommendations offered in the fall of 2006 served as a forerunner of concepts to come. Amid a flurry of transitions, MNDB consolidates. Given the candid and rather dismal views of the USBCT commanders in Baghdad, it was not surprising that Thurman's 4th Infantry Division saw the situation in a similar light following Operation Together Forward II. With Shia militants contesting the mixed areas in western Baghdad and pushing out into the Sunni belts surrounding the city, Thurman considered JAM and other Shia militias' expansion the foremost threat to stability. Thurman recognized that the militia's activity consisted of far more than reprisals. The Shia militants had seized the initiative, and Sunni attacks now appeared retaliatory in nature. Such was the extent of Shia aggression as the division saw it. Yet, the Iraqi government appeared unwilling to deal firmly and impartially with the militias. The Prime Minister's inaction in the face of rising Shia-perpetrated violence led Thurman to believe that neutralizing Al-Qaeda vehicle-borne improvised explosive device or VBIED networks would only slow, not break, the cycle of violence in Baghdad. The imminent turnover of U.S. units in Baghdad affected the way ahead as well. Of the four BCTs operating in the city, three were scheduled to hand over their battle space and return home in November. The 4th, the 172nd Striker Brigade, was slated to depart without replacement, leaving a sizable gap in combat power until December when another Striker Brigade would relocate to the capital from Mosul. Two more BCTs posted north and south of Baghdad would also rotate out during this 30-day period, as would Thurman's division headquarters itself. To keep MNDB's head above water, Thurman had three battalions that would remain through the unit turbulence. 
These anchors of continuity were attached to each of the BCT areas in the capital and directed to increase their operational tempo during the transition. The division would also boost its available combat power by adjusting its coverage of the numerous checkpoints inside the city. In the coming weeks, MNDB intended to focus its operations west of the Army Canal in neighborhoods where the most violence occurred. This effectively made operations in and around Sadr City an economy of force mission and served as an admission that the coalition had little to gain there, especially given the Iraqi government's ambivalent stance toward operating against Shia militants. MNDB's plan to concentrate only on Operation Together Forward's, quote, focus areas, end quote, seemed a quiet plea for additional manpower. The decision to withdraw from checkpoints, the temporary loss of battalions, and the repeated delayed arrival of additional Iraqi army brigades lent a sense of desperation to the division's last few weeks in the country. CENTCOM has its doubts. Skepticism about the Baghdad security plan extended to the highest levels of CENTCOM as well. Following a mid-October visit to Iraq, Abizade determined that the dynamic should change and passed on his impressions to Casey. Abizade had known Thurman for decades, and hearing the MNDB commander's first-hand report on the disappointing results of the Together Forward operations made a profound, sobering impression. While the threat from al-Qaeda remained serious, the sectarian violence that accompanied the Shia militia's campaign to dominate Baghdad could prove, quote, fatal, end quote, to MNFI's mission in Abizade's assessment. That the situation seemed, quote, normal, end quote, across the rest of Iraq mattered little in the face of rising Sunni-Shia tensions in the capital. Whatever happened in Baghdad would be decisive. Besides JAM and other militants' deliberate effort to drive Sunnis from Baghdad's neighborhoods and extend control over the city, Abizade was also concerned about increasing sectarianism in the Iraqi security forces. Singling out the national police as especially troublesome, as Thurman had done, he deemed Ministry of Interior units and institutions as, quote, at best dysfunctional and at worst a deep piece of the sectarian problem, end quote. Recent personnel assignments in key Iraqi army units suggested that the same problem had begun to grip the Ministry of Defense. The need for the coalition to reverse the alarming trends in the security situation had become even more urgent, but Abizade believed that any meaningful reversal would require, quote, serious commitment by the Iraqis, end quote. By this, he meant, quote, firm Iraqi governmental intervention, particularly against Jaish al-Mahdi and bad MOI, or interior ministry, units, end quote. In the short term, Casey's forces could attempt to address the dire situation in the capital militarily. However, for robust military action to have any lasting effect, it needed to be complemented by actions to advance reconciliation and, according to Abizade, progress in this area depended almost entirely on the Iraqis. Achieving mutually reinforcing progress in the areas of security and governance was the way to reduce sectarian violence in Baghdad, he judged. This was the task before Casey and Khalilzad, as the CENTCOM commander saw it. Political Defeat of the Baghdad and Basra Security Plans, page 639. Casey and Maliki, a troubled partnership. Unfortunately, political progress was far from imminent. Worse, the Iraqi government seemed to be playing a deliberately disruptive role, but the MNFI commander had failed to appreciate the extent of its troublesome behavior. As the coalition struggled to check the escalating violence in the summer and fall of 2006, Casey gradually realized that Maliki and his allies interpreted any organized Sunni activity, hostile or otherwise, as the potential forerunner of a broader Baathist resurgence. This led the Prime Minister to balk at authorizing operations against Shia militias that he and other Shia leaders seemed to think they might someday need to defeat the Ba'ath. This state-sanctioned sectarianism became evident to U.S. troops executing the, quote, clear-hold-build, end quote, concept underpinning operations together forward one and two. 
After clearing Sunni neighborhoods, the Americans noticed a lag in the delivery of basic services that could not be explained by a simple lack of ministerial capacity. Sectarian bias on the part of the Shia-run ministries was clearly at play. A similar unseemly bias affected the behavior of the Iraqi security forces. Casey's experience with Maliki illustrated a complex side of civil-military relations. How should a theater commander approach negotiations regarding military strategy and security operations with a host nation head of government driven by his own narrow political interests? As Casey saw it, Maliki was the head of a legitimate government that subscribed to civilian control of the military and was due Casey's respect and deference. Although not Casey's boss, he was regarded by the MNFI commander as a partner. In this partnership, Casey conceived of his role as providing military advice and then letting Maliki lead, not twisting the prime minister's arm against his political interests. It was up to Maliki to weigh the risks and make decisions. Casey believed he had little ability to affect the prime minister's decision-making calculus in any case, and he was not inclined to do so if it would undermine Maliki's leadership in real and perceived ways. Casey had his own views about what was best for Maliki, but he could not know all of the factors that shaped the prime minister's political calculus. In late 2006, the general was especially sensitive to Maliki's need to maintain the support of the Sadrists to stay in power, as inconvenient or even detrimental as that relationship was for coalition operations at the time. Casey consented to give Maliki space to maneuver since a collapse of the Maliki government could potentially set back the campaign's progress by 6 to 12 months. Facing the likely expiration in December 2007 of the UNSCR that authorized the coalition's mission, that was time MNFI could ill afford to lose. Nonetheless, Casey was much less willing to tolerate decisions that threatened to undermine Iraq's security institutions, especially the army. Iraq could limp along and manage the symptoms of a low-grade civil war, he believed, but if the Iraqi army itself fractured, the entire edifice of the coalition's transition-based strategy would crumble along with it. In a sense, the general was in line with then-President George W. Bush's approach. Regarding Maliki, Bush saw assertions of independence and decisiveness as positive signs and instructed Casey and Khalilzad to, quote, nurture his spirit of leadership, end quote. Now that the United States had an Iraqi prime minister who appeared eager to lead, it should, quote, work with him, end quote, and, quote, hold his hand, end quote, through the difficult issues if necessary. This perspective was consistent with Casey's interpretation of UNSCR 1546, which assigned the MNFI commander a responsibility to establish a, quote, security partnership, end quote, with the Iraqis. As Casey saw it, the UNSCR unconventionally assigned to him, the military commander, a, quote, direct role with the sovereign government of Iraq to coordinate, end quote, this partnership. To those like Rumsfeld who routinely expressed their frustration with Maliki's leadership, Casey counseled, quote, you need to walk a mile in Maliki's shoes, end quote. The prime minister was under tremendous pressure from all sides, and additionally, the process of hammering out political deals involving diverse stakeholders took time. In early November, the general went so far as to attribute some of the recent improvement he had witnessed in Iraq to Maliki's efforts. Publicly, too, Casey had sung the prime minister's praises. In what he considered damage control, Casey had issued a press release in late September to counter criticism conveyed anonymously to journalists by subordinate commanders in MNFI. Maliki was doing the best he could in a challenging situation, Casey declared, and he remained a reliable partner. End of Chapter 22, Part 1 The Failed Transition Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021